Okay, everybody, welcome to Monday night at the Chaburah. We are continuing the Hilchot Kasurat series with none other than Harav Yonatan Halevi. And this week's topic is the laws of cooked foods. Uh, definitely something that has practical uh, ramifications for our day-to-day life, uh, as does much of the series. But uh, for me, on a personal note, this is definitely an area that I feel like I need to strengthen. So I am very much looking forward to this. And Hakam, um, I think the stage is yours. And we shall, we shall begin. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you so much for your patience with me this evening, morning, depending where you are in the world. If it is evening right now for you in the world, I'm wishing you a Chodesh Tov, a happy new month of Adar number one. I sent out a link, and hopefully it can be posted continuously throughout the class for people who come in and out, uh, of the source sheet for today. And there should be a link, either a direct link or an actual PDF that's been sent out international Do you know what you did? It's in the chat now. In the chat, perfect. Wonderful. We are going to study today what we call Bishul Israel. Now, a lot of these terms like Bishul Israel are terms that are, I won't say fabricated, but they're, they're, their use in today's world is a little, it's new. It's not necessarily the way that Hamim referred to these terms always. But let's look together at source one on page one of the PDF. And this we already discussed last week. But we're going to focus on a very different part of the Mishnah than we focused in the past. The Mishnah in Abu Dazara tells us, There are things that are made by non-Jews and they are prohibited to us for consumption, but they're not prohibited to us, for example, in terms of hana'ah, to sell them, to deal with them in matters of business or things like that. So this would be similar to the laws that we find in the Shulchan Aruch regarding meat and milk mixtures. So you know that meat and milk is not prohibited to be mixed unless it's hot. They're cooked together. Once they're cooked together, there becomes a biblical prohibition. But if they're cold, that's only a rabbinic prohibition. What difference does it make if it's... um, Give me a cheeseburger grilled with cheese on it, or if it's a salami sandwich with mozzarella cheese, likely there would be a difference in terms of isu hana. Are you allowed to sell these things? Are you allowed to get benefit from these things? And if it's biblically prohibited, the answer would be no. And rabbinically prohibited, likely the answer would be yes. I say likely because there's conversation there. The first thing the Mishnah tells us is chalav shechalav ogoy ve'en milk that are non-Jew milked that a Jewish person did not see being milked. So that would actually be when we use the term. So I told you, Bishul Israel, it's not fabricated, but it's not the way that our rabbis refer to it. Uh, the term Chalav Israel. do you keep Chalav Israel? Do I keep Chalav Israel? Should we keep Chalav Israel? This term Chalav Israel is really the proper halach term. Chalav shechalavo goy ve'en Israel ro'ehu. But I guess it was too hard for people to say that all the time. So they shortened it to something like Chalav Israel. The same thing you're going to find here. Hapat, bread which we discussed last week, and the oil of non-Jews. Ribi Ubedin, oh, he tiru bashemen. Ribi Udam has seen his betadin, 
they removed the, the prohibition, the gizara against oil. Ushlakot. And this is our focus today. Ushlakot. You may be familiar with this term, shlakot, in many different contexts in halakha. If you're studying Masechet Berachot, for example, you might be familiar with whether or not the blessings of vegetables change when you cook them or you don't cook them. The term shlakot refers to food that is cooked. And today, our entire shiul is going to be built on this discussion in the Mishnah of the food of goyim that they cook is forbidden for us on a rabbinic level, not on a Torah level, on a rabbinic level. And that this rabbinic prohibition has very many practical ramifications in the world today. So let me just think them through you now. You go to uh, someone's home and they're not Jewish. So it could be you could have cookies from a box, but what about food that's actually cooked? We're not talking about a kashrut issue. We're talking about the fact that a non-Jew has participated in the cooking. You are going to a restaurant. It's 100% kasher, but all the people in the back that are working there are not Jewish. Is the food kasher or is it not kasher? You're going to a wedding and the caterer only employs non-Jewish people and one mashgiach. Is the food that the caterer cooks actually kasher? Uh, and as you go through uh, these scenarios, you are having a party. You hire someone to be a chef for you. That chef is not Jewish. Why? Because he's a five-star Michelin chef, whatever he is, and you want the best food you can get. But unfortunately, he has not had his Dalit Milah, he hasn't joined Am Yisrael yet. And because of that, you need to know, is the food that you are serving at your party, is it kasher or is it not kasher? Last week, we discussed bread, the bread of green. And it's very, very important for us that we don't get stuck on the things that we learned last week and try to apply them to this week. Bread of goyim is one prohibition. Cooked foods of goyim is an entirely different prohibition. And though they sound similar, the rules that are attached to them are entirely different one from the other. Now, are there those who try to compare them? Absolutely. We're going to discuss that in today's show. But for your sake, as you move forward, you need to remember two things. One, food that is cooked by goyim is not a strict kashrut issue, meaning... We are not concerned with them making us non-kasher food. If the food is not kasher, then we can't eat it at all. There's no, there's no reason for a rabbinic law to tell you, oh, you can't have pork chops made by your next neighbor. We know that. Even if it was made by my Jewish neighbor, I wouldn't be able to have those pork chops. So the non-Jew being involved in the cooking has nothing to do with kashrut in terms of the kashrut of the food, but rather whether or not there is a separate rabbinic degree prohibiting a non-Jew from being involved with our food. The second, and the second is that the pacha goyim, the bread of goyim, and bishule goyim are two different halakot. So you can remember things we learned last week, but don't get stuck on them when trying to apply them to these halakot because they have very different rules. Unlike pacha goyim, the bread that has a few different scattered subyot that discuss it, uh, the dedicated, dedicated conversation of Chachamim regarding bishule goyim takes up the better of two pages, entire pages of the Talmud. And as much as I would love to sit with you and go through every statement of the Talmud and compare the opinions of Surah and Pumpadita and how they differ, and those are very important things. But in the context of the time that we have today, I would rather focus less on theoretical halakhic conversation and more on practical halakhic conversation. So I've included the Hebrew and English here for you so that you can take it home when you're done with the shiul and go through the Talmud and, and learn it on your own and between now and next shiul to really own this suya. But we're going to have to go 
after the Suya and really discuss from the Mishnah until the times of the Rishonim, how did this halakha develop and why did it develop and why are we permitted or prohibited from eating food that was cooked to us by non-Jews? I think one last thing I would like to tell you, and that is we use the term in Hebrew, goyim, in a positive fashion. Who's the biggest goy in the whole world? HaKadosh Buhu calls us Yitro. Goyechad Baaretz. Goyechad Goy Gadol. We're the greatest Goy. Which other Goy like us in the world? The term Goy is a term that refers to a nation. And when Jewish people use it, it usually refers to the nations of the world, meaning nations that are not Yehudim. But Jewish people are also referred to as Goyim throughout the Torah. And I regret someone's sound is uh, I regret deeply that our Ashkenazi brothers and sisters have turned the term goyim into some kind of negative racial slur that you say this is a goy, this is a goyim I don't, I don't like it, I don't appreciate it I would usually use the term no Yehudi, somebody who's not Jewish or uh, whatever else you might say but if the word goyim comes out, please understand that in our context, in our frame of mind there's nothing negative about this term, and it's only referring to either Jews as a goy gadol or other Jews as uh, other non-Jews as goyim. Right? Exactly. We don't do that. We don't call other Jews goyim. That's that's what we don't do. So in source three over here on the source sheet, Tosafot in Masechet discuss that this prohibition of Bishulei goyim is actually older than the Talmud or the Mishnah itself. It says, Shema Kadmoniti. There is conversation that this may be an earlier Gezerah. Like I mentioned to you last week, there are definitely those commentaries that wish to explain to us that Daniel, maybe the Talmud, that Daniel, the Prophet, he was particular when eating with non-Jews to stay away from Patbag Hamed, possibly the cooked foods of non-Jews. And what's the difference, therefore, between bread and baked foods? The reason why our rabbis seem to be more lenient about bread than about cooked foods of goyim is because unlike bread, what's the whole reason? Mishum chatnut. We won't, don't want to come and marry, intermarry, we eat bread together, we, we talk to each other, we'll end up, our children will marry each other, and therefore our chachamim kept us away from the non-Jews in this way. But by bread, it's not so common that people intermarry. Until Shammai and Hillel came in that famous Mishnah we studied last week in Masechah Shabbat, and they instituted 18 things of non-Jews that we're not allowed to eat, or other Gezerot. We find that when our rabbis seemingly were permissive regarding non-Jewish baked breads or baked goods, they did not extend the same leniency towards cooked foods. And so already in the Rambam, we saw last week that bread of Goyim, there are entire communities that that they consider this to be permissible. We do not find the same thing by cooked foods of Goyim. Likely the reason, says Tosavot, that there's a different uh, element here of, of closeness with Goyim, and therefore cooked foods has a different status than baked goods. Rashi. 
רש"י אקספליינס, אין מסכת עבודה זרה, השלקות, כל דבר שבשלו גוי, ואפילו בכלית ההור. anything with a non-Jew cooks, even in a kosher pot or a kosher pan, it's forbidden. And all of it is because we might come to intermarry. So Rashi says two things. One, all cooked foods by Goyim are forbidden. And the second is that the reason why it's forbidden is because of intermarriage. Nothing to do with Kashrut. And therefore Rashi tells us that even if these foods are cooked by a non-Jewish person in a kasher pot, in a kasher pan, they would be forbidden. This is a little complicated because Rashi himself in Masechet Avodah Zarah, a little bit later, he writes a different reason entirely for why we're not allowed to eat the cooked foods of Goyim. And he says, Shelo Yihei Yisrael, source 5, Shelo Yihei Yisrael ragil etzlo b'machal v'mishteh, we're afraid that the Jewish person will become too casual, too friendly with a non-Jewish person. What's the problem with that? V'yachilenu davar tameh. And he'll end up feeding him something that is not kasher, not permitted for consumption. Now this that Rashi mentions, is really, it's Rashi. The Rambam doesn't talk about this, Maram doesn't talk about this, and this understanding that maybe if we get too close, they'll come to give us not kasher food. Let's just say that even Rashi himself recognizes that the main gezeya, like the Rambam told us last week in the commentary of the Mishnah, is Mishum Chatanut, because of intermarriage. We eat together, we become friendly with each other, and the next step that happens is that we will marry each other. The Rambam discusses this here and tries to explain the two different understandings of Rashi. Let's not get stuck on that. If you look in source 7, the Rambam in the Mishneh Torah, so actually how he codifies the Salakah, all of these decrees which the Rambam mentions in the laws of forbidden foods, chapter 17, that the main reason for this decree is because of intermarriage. It's no besuda. So that the non-Jew doesn't invite him to himself for a meal, and then they become friends, and then that leads to intermarriage. If I can also add in here an understanding, last week we mentioned that the bread of Goyim, the reason why certain Chachamim were lenient about it, the people, it's a staple food. They need this food. Bread and water are the bare necessities that a person needs. And therefore, our Chachamim seem to have looked the other way, which developed in Minhag, however you read that sugya, which says that bread is crucial, and because bread is crucial, then the Chachamim were lenient about those who were uh, permissive regarding bread of Goyim. But uh, French fries, or uh, fish and chips, or hamburgers, or whatever else you might eat, those are not Chayamifish, contrary to what you might feel like during the nine days, or whatever else you're feeling. And those are not the lifeblood of a human being, and therefore our Chachamim did not need to extend this permissive stance towards cooked foods. However, let's give us some background here in source 8. Uh, and this really summarizes the Gemara that we were skipping before. Let's do it together. But Gemara in the Talmud, Amalav, Rav says, Kol hanechal Any food that is eaten raw, en mishum there is no prohibition for a non-Jew to cook it for us. So Rav in the Talmud suggests the following thing. Any food, which you can eat that food raw. What does it mean you can eat the food raw? You can eat everything in the world raw. So technically, you can take a potato and bite into the potato and eat it. We're not talking about can you as much as do you. Any food which is eaten raw. So even though you would cook it, I'll give you an example. A tomato. Do people cook tomatoes? 
Of course. Can you eat a tomato raw? People do that all the time. Onions. Do you eat onions raw? Salad with onions, whatever it might be. Uh, do people cook onions? Absolutely. Anything which is cooked by a non-Jew, but it is something that you would eat it raw regularly, does not have a prohibition of Bishulei Let's think logically for a moment. Perhaps we could say, when my next door neighbor uh, makes me uh, ribeye steak for dinner, then that brings me some kind of, wow, you really went out of your way to cook dinner for me. Think about you're dating someone. You want to impress him or her with the dinner. So you invite them over for chicken, uh, for uh, risotto. I don't know, you're going to make some fancy food you're going to make for them. Uh, that brings people together. But you tell your next door neighbor, welcome to the neighborhood. Here's some fried onions. Nobody's going to say anything. It's not, it's not something that's important enough to bring this relationship. And therefore, Rav suggests that it does not have a prohibition on Bishulei That's the way that the Chachamim of Sura, they preserve this teaching. The Pumpadita, Matun But in Pumpadita, in the other rabbinic academy, they study this differently. Amara, Rav says, Kol Anything which does not fit to be served, which is not fit to be served at a king's table. So it's not an important food. And he mentions here that you would eat with bread. There is no prohibition of non-Jewish cooking. So this second understanding of Rav says, no, Rav said there is an exception to the rule. There are things non-Jews can cook for us. What are they? Anything which is not served at a royal table. If it's not served at the royal table, then non-Jews are allowed to cook that thing for us. Now that term, just keep it on the side. We're going to discuss it in a little bit. But for right now, we find two different understandings of what Rav said. What's the difference between the practice? What's the difference between them? Let's say that uh, small fish and some understand for mushrooms and oatmeal, uh, some kind of porridge. These are foods that are not eaten raw. But at the same time, these foods are not served at a royal table. So depending on how you understand what the Rav said, what is permissible? Are things that are not fitting for a royal table? Is that what a non-Jew can cook for me? Or are they foods that you can eat raw? Because a small fish is not... Think of a sardine. Yeah, the small fish. I'm just saying. Imagine this sardine. You wouldn't serve it in Buckingham Palace. But you also wouldn't eat it raw. So what is it? Is it permissible or is it prohibited? This really depends on whether or not you understand Rav the way the Chachamim of Surah did or the way the Chachamim of Pumpedita did. That the way to understand this Talmud is that these are not contradictory understandings of Rav, but rather they're supposed to be put together in a lenient fashion. That even though something is not eaten raw, because it is not fit to be served at a royal table, there is no prohibition of non-Jewish cooking. So we combine both of these opinions. Now, in order for something to be prohibited when a non-Jew cooks it, it has to, one, be something that you cannot eat raw, and two, something that does not fit in a royal table. So we're combining these two opinions to, to leniency in both directions. So if it's fitting to be served at a royal table, 
but it can be eaten raw, then you can still have a Nanju cook it for you. If it can't be eaten raw, but it won't be served at a royal table, you can have a non Jew cooking it for you. And this understanding reconciles these two opinions of Rav. And therefore he rules, that as long as one of these two exists, you are lenient, and the laws of Bishulei Goim don't apply. That the Rosh, the Rashba, and Naran, they all agree that you need one of these two in order to permit food uh, that is cooked by non-Jews. That's also the opinion of Rabbeinu Hananel. And the Rambam writes the same thing in the laws of forbidden foods. And all of them are ruling in uh, contrary to the Rambam, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, that he only went according to the understanding of the Chachamim of Surah. Let me summarize everything I told you right now. There is a rabbinic prohibition of non-Jews cooking our food. This has nothing to do with kashrut, aside from that word of Rashi. Let's put Rashi on the side. This has everything to do with the rabbinic prohibition against intermarriage. What things are Goyim allowed to cook for us? The conclusion that we find in the sugya are twofold. One, anything which can be eaten raw does not have a problem when non-Jews cook it for us. So if you can eat it raw, it's something that you would eat raw. All of those things that you can think about, a non-Jew is allowed to cook them for you. The second is, is it fitting to be served at a royal table? If it is fitting to be served at a royal table, a non-Jew cannot cook it for us, unless it's something that can be eaten raw. If it's something that can be eaten raw, then we don't care anymore. Is it served at a royal table? Is it not? But the other way is also true. If it is something that can be served, uh, fitting to serve at a royal table, though you can't eat it raw, nonetheless, a non-Jew is allowed to cook it for us because these are things which this rabbinic decree does not apply to. So now, whenever you talk about Yishulei you have to remember two rules. There are two conditions. Can I eat it raw? If I can eat this raw. So let's give you an example. Someone makes for me some kind of apple tart. I don't know. It's cooked apples. Can you eat an apple raw? Yes. Would they serve at a very fancy dinner these tart apple desserts? Absolutely. But it doesn't make a difference. Because once I know that I can eat it raw, the prohibition of Bishul Goim does not apply anymore. And the flip side, if it is something that I cannot eat raw, but it is something that would not be served at a royal table, and we're going to discuss practical examples of those things, then there also is no problem if a non-Jewish person cooks them for us. So think about now the scenarios that I mentioned before. I hire a non-Jewish chef to cook for me. I go to a wedding or a restaurant where they're serving cooked foods that are made by going there's no kashrut issues, so we're not dealing with kashrut issues right now. In all of those scenarios, there will be foods that I can eat, and there will be foods that I cannot eat, depending on, can I eat it raw, and does it, is it fit to be served at a royal table? And that's exactly what we're going to see now when we analyze the writings of the Postim. Let's do this. Let's jump straight into the Shohan I have printed the Rambam for you on page 7 and 8. And I'm going to make through the same comment that I made in every other show until now. And that is, look at how beautifully and clearly the Rambam is able to explain everything and in so few sentences. Let's instead uh, complicate our lives a little bit by jumping right into Maran Shukhanu 
on page nine in the sources, that I've added here two things. So this is the Shukhan Aruch with the notes of the Ramah. In between the lines of Shukhan Aruch are two different things. One, uh, the Sikumim, the, the brief notes of my Rabbi, Mawir Rabbi Akhlopen, it's on the Shukhan Aruch. And sometimes there are other little notes that I added myself from different sources that I think might be relevant as you look at the Shulchan Aruch. This is not an all-encompassing commentary in the Shulchan Aruch, but things that I feel are important that we highlight today. So if last week's Siman in Yoreda was 112, Kuf Yud Bet, then this week's Siman in the Shulchan Aruch is Kuf Yud Gimel 113, and that's exactly why I chose the order that I chose, first to speak about bread and then to speak about cooked foods. You have a very interesting reality in the world. I once had someone complain, oh, you guys, your community, you do this, you do that, you eat this, I looked at him and said, listen, you, you keep kasher? Yes. You know how to keep kasher? Yes. Uh, where are the Shukhan al the laws of kashrut now? And looked at me, said, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, I have this. I'm not going to ask you for a verse and sentence. I just want, there are four major volumes of the Shukhan al and which one of them are the laws of kashrut now? I don't know. I never learned the laws of kashrut in the Shukhan al So if you never learned the laws of kashrut in the Shukhan al I kindly ask you to stop considering yourself a kashrut observing Jew. Until now, you have not observed kashrut. You've observed whatever other people have told you. When you're able to show me where in the Shulchan Aruch talks about the laws of kashrut, I'd be more than happy to have an intelligent conversation with you surrounding the laws of kashrut. And I recommend this. Some of you asked me at the end of the other shiurim, what do we do about other people? That don't? So most other people, they consider themselves so observant of the laws that they've never studied before. It'll be like a doctor telling you they're a doctor, but they never went to medical school. They're a lawyer telling you I'm a lawyer, never went to law school. You can't say you keep kashel, but you never learn how to keep kashel. It's just, it, it, like, I don't know that. It can happen. Let's look at Marana, chapter 113. Marana writes, Something that is not eaten when it is raw. And also it is fitting to be served at a king's table. That it's eaten uh, on the bread. What is a parperet? Let's call it for now a dessert. Yeah, let's call it that. Meaning it's, it's either a food that is eaten with bread or a standalone dessert. The non-Jew has cooked for us. Even in Jewish utensils. And in a Jewish home. It is forbidden to eat this food. Because this food has been cooked by non-Jews. So this is the scenario. I want you to stop thinking about not kosher restaurants. Stop thinking right now about going to some vegan place. You think Stop. All of those thoughts. I'm talking about your home. In your home, you have cooking help. I'll give you a common example. At least I know of in the United States. There are very many people. They have help with their kids. It's a nanny. She comes to take care of the kids for the few hours when they come home from work. Between when school ends and when they come home from work. And this nanny, she plays with them, she draws with them, she, whatever she does with them. And sometimes the parents are running late, so she takes an egg from the refrigerator and she uh, breaks it into a pan and she scrambles it and the egg is kasher. We mentioned already, you don't have to worry about the blood and the egg. There's no blood in the egg, yes? The salt that she puts in there is kasher. The frying pan that she uses, come on, she's your nanny. She knows where the meat frying pan is, where the dairy frying pan is, where the palavan frying pan is. She knows the whole kitchen, which stove top is it, which cabinet. She knows everything. She has all the stickers. I want someone's house and have stickers on everything. Palavan, bisari, chalavi, everything has it labeled. She knows. Now this egg that she's going to serve to your child, is it mutal or asu? This egg is entirely prohibited for consumption. Is an egg eaten raw? Don't tell me that people who gargle eggs and eat them, they don't count as people. 
they they are just uh, the egg. I'm joking. Oh, yeah. uh, Maran is going to explicitly say that eggs, even though people gargle them, it's not the way people eat eggs. Nobody says, "Want to come to my house? We're we're eating bowls of raw eggs today." Give it a few years. I'm sure this will become a trend. But for right now, it's not a thing. And the next part of this is aside from the fact that it's not eaten raw. You could serve eggs at a, a royal breakfast where they have a omelets and hard boiled eggs, whatever it might be. This is something that is served, and therefore. There is a problem of Bishudan going. If you look at my Shuriti forum, I once shared a thought there that it could be that children, especially at a certain age, are exempt from these prohibitions that are rabbinic. There is such a conversation. I believe that Flame Magadim talks about it. But for all intents and purposes, I'm talking about adults. So in your kashel kitchen, if your home help makes food, that food is prohibited for consumption. And that's a good question. What if my home help? makes eggs for her, themselves. They're cooking. Now they scramble an egg for their own lunch. Is that frying pan still kasher? Or has non-kasher food been cooked in it and now it requires a, a kashering process? We're going to talk about that as well. Let's look at the notes here. There is an interesting conversation among the as to whether food that is prepared by non-Jews are forbidden only when methods of heat are used, like fire, or any type of cooking by non-Jews, any type of food preparation by non-Jews could prohibit the food. I, in the middle of paragraph of Source 1, the Shah wants to suggest that Maran is saying that even food that has not changed by the fire, it just hasn't changed, nothing's changed about it, it still might be prohibited. Yeah. I don't want to get stuck in this detail, but let's look at the next word, the palpere. Maran says that food that is eaten raw has a problem with Bishul And food that is served in the king's table has a problem with Bishul And then he says, The foods that are eaten with bread or as a dessert. The question is, are those also conditions number three or three and four? Meaning if I have food that is not eaten with bread, that is cooked by a non-Jew and is fitting to be served at a royal table, is there a way to understand this as saying those foods are still permitted because they're not eaten with bread? There is a Pari Chadash like that. The Pari Chadash quoted at the bottom of page 9 says that this word that is eaten with bread is dafka. It's intentional. It's not unintentional. It's intentional. And therefore, unless the food is eaten with bread or it's a standalone dessert, then there is no problem of Bishul Egoim. And the Erech HaShulchan understands that this is also uh, the understanding of the Yerushalmi, the Talmud Yerushalmi. I will just tell you that though I recognize that there is such a halakhic opinion in the Jewish community, my understanding of this Shulchan Aruch, as well as that of my rabbi, is that there are two conditions for making food Bishul Egoim. One, that it is a food that cannot be eaten raw. And two, that it is fitting to be served at a royal table. And the other words that are used here are used der agam. They come to include other things, but not to exclude other things. And if you like, we can have a conversation about that at the end of the shiur. So let's go through a list of things that might be permitted to be cooked by goyim and things that might be prohibited from being cooked by goyim. If you look at the bottom left of page nine, so these are things that are mentioned explicitly by the puskim. Milk that was cooked by an anju. Why would a non-Jew cook milk and then turn it into cheese? 
they do it all the time in the grocery stores that you buy that cheese. It's cooked. Why is it cooked? To make it curdle. Okay. So, the other way is to make cheese curdle. It's yeah. a safety thing. People cook the milk. Like There's raw cheese. In many states, it's forbidden even to sell raw cheese because of the health department regulations and things like that. But there are people who prefer that. And so even though the cooking is part of the cheese making process, it's not going to make the food not kasher. The reason you can eat this milk even when it's not cooked. And the cheese, you can also eat it when it's not cooked. And therefore, there's no prohibition of cooking there. Mashke cafe. So coffee. Coffee, if you think about it, is really a bean that is roasted and then cooked. And neither of those things are a problem. We'll discuss coffee specifically a little bit later in this year. I will let you know that if you're a Kabbalist, uh, then you're going to have a problem because the coffee is not kasher for you. But for everybody else, the coffee is fine when made by going Kidneyot, legumes. It's particularly, we were sourcing the Ramah here, roasted legumes. So I'm not talking about cooked kidneyot, but imagine there are, um, have you heard of these foods? Corn nuts or chickpea, dried chickpeas. They're like a kidneyot that are roasted. They're dried out. They're roasted. They're a snack. Rama permits those things from being consumed. The ging tanish in the whole small salted fish, even though salty, is considered a cooking process that is permissible. We're going to talk about that soon. The Rama writes, "V'chen kol davar shnechal chayel dehadachat ubishelo goy dinoke dagim bitovim." And anything that is eaten just barely raw, meaning it's not something you really eat raw, then that would have a problem of bishelo goyim. And so, for example, afkat the bukhan amashan goy potato starch of non-Jews. Let's leave it on the side. Pesach is soon. Devarim hasurim things that are forbidden to be eaten by goyim. A boiled or fried egg of a non-Jew. So rice is something that is cooked by going and souvganiyot. Donuts. Donuts are not baked goods. We're going to have an entire discussion about donuts towards the end of the shiul right now. But for right now, let's say that these are foods that we are familiar with. Rice. I'll make one note about rice. And it goes into how objective or subjective this idea that food that are serving, fit to be served at a royal table. An example I'll tell you. I know for certain that in the United Kingdom, the royal family is prohibited from eating, uh, I don't know what you call it, French rice, chips, fried potatoes. It's not a food that is served at a royal table. And the question then leads to, so are Jews who live in the United Kingdom allowed to eat French fries of Goyim? That's a great question. You ask whatever rabbi is in the United Kingdom about the policy on French fries uh, made by Goyim. But for right now, yeah, pasta. Okay, so there are certain foods that are forbidden to be eaten. And this, uh, I'll tell you, in the United States, um, people like to say the White House is a royal table. The only reason they say that is because they've never seen a royal table before. Let's be honest. Yeah, but the White House, pretty much everything goes over there. They eat anything in the White House. Even the things they didn't used to eat, today they eat them. Uh, rice, though. I saw an interesting article once by one of the Kashrut organizations that has operations running out of China. And they claim, I've never been to China, so I don't know that rice in China is, a, is food for poor people and that the wealthy upper-class royal families or, or wealthy elite of China will never serve rice at a meal. It's considered disrespectful. It's like serving you the cheapest food they can possibly think of. And so whereas for us, that might be a normal side dish on our Shabbat dinner, for them would be entirely disrespectful to serve somebody important rice. And it could be interesting whether rice in China would have a problem of Bishulei Goim or not. 
When you go to China, I'll give you the number of a rabbi that we know that. On page 10, at the top of the page, Maran writes, If you take something that can be eaten raw, and you mix it, with something else that cannot be eaten raw, and the non-Jew cooked it, So you have two foods that are cooked together. These two foods that are cooked together, one is permissible for a non-Jew to cook and one is not. Why? One is able to be eaten raw and one is not. How do you determine in a mixture of foods whether or not you can eat this food? It has to do with how much. If there's more of the forbidden, then it's forbidden. And if it's more of the permissible one, it is permissible. The Amma writes, you're allowed to eat all the roasted beans and nuts. Uh, not nuts. Uh, don't keep me up. Roasted things. They're not fit to be served at a royal table. We in Ashkenaz treat these things as permissible unless the frying pan is used with forbidden fats. Then the custom is not to eat them. Says the Amman, but unless you know for certain that the frying pan to roast these nuts has been used, I'm saying nuts, to roast these kidneyot has been used with forbidden fats, shari, it's permissible. And in general, you have to have a rule, says the Amman, that when you buy things that are cooked by goyim, you do not have to worry about the utensils which were used. Because remember the rule we studied a few weeks ago? That all utensils have a status of they have not been used in the last 24 hours. And therefore, there is no problem with it. Can you imagine if this would be the policy of the world today? Every time someone calls me and says, hey, how do you know that in the factory, that the machine, it's literally a halakhan. How do you know? Because you know, the rabbis gave us a rule that you don't have to be concerned unless you know that forbidden fats are being used in your food. The actual pan itself may have been used for who cares? Right now, 24 hours have passed and that is no longer a kashut problem when it comes to my food. In source 3, the famous Chav Chaim writes, that even though the Ramah says that you can eat roasted kitniot, the non-Jews have roasted, the Arizal said that it is forbidden. And here you have a classic case about whether or not when the Arizal argues with Halakha, who do you follow? The Kabbalists or the Puskim? Now, for some of you, that answer might be simpler than others. But for others, this uh, answer gets a little more complicated. I want to just point you, keep your finger here, but I want to point you to a Teshuvah that I sourced at the back of the packet from Chacham over Yosef, who writes, in source 14, and it's on the back, it's on page 24. Page 24 has a teshuvah about whether canned beans, canned beans are a problem with Bishulei Goim or not. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. 
when I came to Los Angeles for the first time, we opened up the Shaliki Ben Midash there. And the huge rage, how could it be that gelatin is kasher? Now, for years, you could just, you were bored, you ran out of things to talk about. All they wanted to talk about was gummy bears. So the whole world was gummy bears, gummy bears, gummy bears. And it was interesting to me when people started joining our Shaviki forum from the United Kingdom, somehow baked beans became a super hot topic. Are baked beans kasher or not? Now, I don't understand the inner workings. You know, this might be the, the secret Torah of the United Kingdom. There's some you know, esoteric understanding of baked beans. But in, in my perspective, baked beans are just baked beans. And baked beans fall into this category. Are they kasher or not? Well, it depends on a few things. One, on the kashrut of the food. And two, are beans allowed to be cooked for us by goyim? When Chacham Wadeh Yosef deals with this whole idea that the Kabbalists say that even though the poskim say that roasted beans are fine, I'm not talking about cooked, like the, the ones corn nuts or those things that I told you, the Arizal forbids that. Uh, I highlighted here in source 14 on page 24, a numerous different poskim who say that whenever there's a contradiction between the poskim and the mukubanim, that obviously the halakha follows the halakhic rabbis and not the kabbalistic rabbis. And if we get a chance to look at it, we will. But if not, that's a very precious teshuvah to look at and have in your, there are many, many other teshuvah that are sourced in there that you might find very useful. The Kavachai mentioned to us in the bottom of page 10, HaKaveh Shel Goyim. Now that's how he transliterated the word coffee. The coffee of Goyim. Rabbeinu HaRizal Asaram Mishum Goyim. Our Rabbi Darizal, the Kavachai is a Kabbalist, because our Rabbi Darizal forbids us from drinking cafe of Goyim because it's considered non-Jewish cooked food. And he brings a conversation about this. In source in Chavbet, on page 10 in the left column, the Zivchet Tzedek says that in Baghdad, the custom was of everybody to go drink coffee from the Goyim, though they were aware that the Kabbalists had said that that is forbidden. In Chavgimel, so on the bottom left of page 10, the Kavachayim adds one more source, and he says, just the roasted coffee kernels, built bishul that have not been cooked in water. You are allowed to buy roasted coffee beans and cook them at home. The problem of the Kabbalists is not the roasting of the coffee beans, it's the boiling of the coffee inside of water, which they consider to be something that you would not eat raw, one. And two, it is something that would be served at a royal table, and therefore the Arizal was very careful uh, regarding coffee, and therefore the Kabbalists also were careful regarding coffee of Goyim. So for all of you who appreciate Starbucks or coffee bean or whatever else, and the rest of the year you tell me, ah, I'm in the Kubal, I do this, I do that, according to Kamala. So I would just like to see you give up your $8 coffees that you pay for, and because those coffees are made by Goyim, and therefore according to the Mikubalim, they would be forbidden for consumption. Harapelet in Source 4 just very simply writes, Cafe both coffee and tea of Goyim are permissible. Uh, and that is the status of all the Jewish communities that I know of. The minhag is to eat coffee and tea of Goyim, drink coffee and tea of Goyim. Now, there's a famous picture you may know of, of the Benish Chai. Uh, the Benish Chai with his turban and his beard, it's a famous it's a picture of the Benish Chai. Uh, if you look in the Seldheim edition of the Benish Chai, he has long tail. Uh, they added, he became a Hasidic Benish Chai. But before he was Hasidic, the Benish Chai was a Sephardic rabbi in Baghdad. And he uh, was, th- that picture seems to have been, from what I understand of the history, uh, the Benish Chai was actually either he was hosting or he was hosted by uh, a non-Jewish diplomat there. And from what I understand, they were sitting over a cup of coffee. Now, is that a place you learn how to from? No, I'm just telling you that that was the culture in the streets of any Sephardic community for sure. 
and even Ashkenazi communities was that we would go to non-Jewish coffee houses or tea houses and drink the coffee and tea there, and those were not considered a problem of Bishulegoyim. Here, Malan writes about a food called a panada. And if I'm mispronouncing it, I'm sorry. Shafa'agoy. There's a certain type of food that a non-Jew cooks it, bakes it. Even though it's a baked good, and even if you permit baked goods by goyim, you will not be allowed to eat this panada dish. Because the fat that melts in this food is prohibited because of Bishol Egoim, and it's swallowed into the bread. Let's look at source 5 for a moment. Uh, the Kafachim tells us, what is Panada? Shel Basar, Pashtida. We call this, in Hebrew, Pashtida also. What is Pashtida? Every time I've heard uh, a Chacham who is not Sephardic read this halakha, they always say, Pashtida, it's like Sephardic Kugel. What is a Sephardic Kugel? I don't know. I don't know if such a thing. But, uh, what is a Sephardic kugel? I'll tell you what Pashida, and also you have this in the laws of Pata Baba Kislim, you have in Shukhan Ufrawakhaim. Pashida is, if you can imagine, uh, those of you who are from Spanish speaking backgrounds are familiar with empanadas. Let's call it, for lack of a better term, a meat boreka. More borekas that we have with meat inside. Now the meat is already cooked and it's closed. The non Jew who bakes that is a problem because somehow they're baking this fat that's in the panada, and that fat. Is forbidden because of Bishul Egoim. So even though the dough may be permissible, but the fat is not. And says our parents in source 6, And even though Maran wrote above that if it mixes, something that is allowed to be cooked by Goyim, so it's not allowed to be cooked by Goyim, are mixed, and that's nullified in a majority mixture. Shani Haka, it's different here. Because you can actually see, it's not a mixture where you lost one of the ingredients inside of the other. But here you can tell this is the forbidden one, this is the permissible one, and therefore you are not allowed to eat that food. Halakhat Dalit in the Shukhan is going to be very important for us. Oh, let's read one last sentence of Gimel. V'chen yilakot, and if there are vegetables, hanechalim chayim, that are cooked, that are eaten raw, shibishlamim basar, they cook them with meat, asurim, it's forbidden to eat them, mipnei shashuman shal basar nilabahim. Because the fat of the, of the kasher meat, but it's not kasher anymore because it was cooked by goyim. So let's give you an example. Someone's making a stir fry. What's in the stir fry? Broccoli, uh, carrots, I don't know, green, green peas, whatever else they're mixing in the stir fry. Onions, those onions and broccoli, can you eat them raw? Yes. If a non-Jew fries onions or sautés onions and broccoli for me, can I eat that food? Yes. But the meat that is kasher, 100% glad kasher in the frying pan that was sautéed by an anju. Can I eat that meat? No. And therefore, even though the broccoli and the onions are allowed to be cooked by goyim, because they now have the oil of the meat, the fat of the meat, we're no longer allowed to eat that broccoli or those onions. And therefore, you have to remember, when it comes to laws of Bishul goyim, that there are situations that are a little more complex. You might say, I won't eat the chicken, I'll just have the vegetables, but that may actually be a problem of Bishule Goyim. In Halakha Dalit, Maran tells us the following. Yesh mi shematir There is one, there are chachamin who permit our non-Jewish slaves, maidservants, who cook for us, that they are allowed to cook for us. We own them, they are our property, 
they can cook for us. And there are those who say that even non-Jewish slaves are not allowed to cook for us. Even after the fact, meaning there's no room for leniency. And that's a conversation of the Rashba. Let me ask you a question. We've discussed this before. When Maran brings two opinions, one is a yesh umuim, and one is a yesh umuim. Some say, and some say, which opinion is that of the Shuharavu? That's a question you can answer. When there's a yesh, a yesh, have this rule in your head. Whenever Maran says a halakha clearly, this is a halakha, but some say, the opinion always follows the first one. Whatever Maran says clearly is the halakha, and the second one that he quotes as an opinion is that it's an opinion. But when Maran quotes two opinions, some say this and some say that, he always follows the second opinion, unless he says the halakha is like the first one. But if he just says some say and some say, Maran is letting you know that his opinion is the second. So there is a chacham who says that non-Jewish slaves that work for us are allowed to cook for us, but Maran says, no, that's not the case. The case is that even the, their food is prohibited, even even after it happens, there is no one to rely on. You cannot rely on this opinion. But he quotes it in the Shulchan Aruch. Nonetheless, this Yesh Mishamatir, the one who permits this is the Rashba. Rashba, he says that non-Jewish slaves that work for us, when they cook food for us, there is no problem of Bishulegoim. And if you look in the notes here, in source 7, there's two versions of how Perez's notes in the Shulchan Aruch here, and I quoted both. There's a shorter version and a longer version. Uh, the Ramah says, let's read the Ramah first, Uvdi Avad, after the fact. So you have a non-Jewish slave that cooked food. You should rely on the lenient opinion of the Rashbah. And we, the Ashkenazim, even ideally, so even intentionally, in a Jewish home, we are lenient. That our non-Jewish maidservants and slaves cook for us in our homes. There can't be that one of the Jewish people who work in the house won't come and stoke the coals or move the pan or whatever else. And therefore, we, in our homes, have non-Jewish people that cook for us. Ideally. And here I have to say the following, and that is that in the laws of Bishulegoim, the Ashkenazim are infinitely more lenient about these halakhot than the Safaradim are. And this is going to pose a major problem for us in restaurants, in wedding halls, in other people's homes, in other such places. Uh, but for right now, let's just understand that the Ashkenazim and the Safaradim do not see eye to eye on the laws of Bishul. If you look here in the sources, Biu. Uh, the opinion of the one who's material is not bad, I told you. I'm skipping that a little bit. That's Taz and Nashach, they say, The people that work for you in your home today, they don't count as non-Jewish slaves. You're a cleaning lady, you're a nanny, you're a personal chef. In the world of today, he's talking a few hundred years ago, but in the world of today, they are not your property. And as such, they don't count in this leniency. They are only on loan to us. You hire a person, so while you hire them, they work for you. But they're not your slave, and therefore you're not prohibited from uh, Shabbat. You know, in the Torah, the Torah tells us that we're, who has to keep Shabbat? 
אתה ובתך ובתך ועבדך ועבדך ובגרך אשר ושעריך You, your family, your slaves, your maidservants, everyone has to keep Shabbat. That doesn't happen with your hired help. And therefore, you cannot rely on this regarding the hired help that you have in your homes today. The Pri Chadash says uh, that according to everybody, meaning even according to the Ramban, it would be forbidden to say that the people who work for you in your homes count as the slaves that uh, the Rashbah was permitting. And that's really the conclusion of the halakha. And I really don't have much more to add, aside from, uh, thank God that we don't have slaves anymore. But more than that, uh, that there is no leniency in terms of I hired them and therefore they are mine. In the next source. On page 12. There is a conversation among the latter poskim about whether or not those Jews who don't observe Shabbat, are allowed to cook for us or not. Now, I touched on this already last time. Last time I told you, and this is still my opinion in the halakha, and that is that non-observant Jews, like it or not, and I like it, uh, but other people clearly not, uh, they are considered Jews. They're just, they're part of our, our people. And as such, we're allowed to bury their children. We're even allowed to marry them. And <clears throat> I see no reason to be stringent and say that a non-observant Jew who cooks for us would make a kashrut problem. Uh, an interesting source of this, if you look at the Shavuot Rambam, the Rambam is talking about the Karaites in Egypt, who are, they're biologically Jewish, but in practice, they belong to a completely different mentality. And I have given Shulim about Karait uh, and rabbinic relations in my uh, regular Shiviti UK class. The Pichet Teshuvah, he quotes a similar thing. Uh, and there is discussion about whether or not uh, you are allowed to eat food from non-observant Jews. There are definitely poskim who say you are not allowed to. They're like going, I don't feel comfortable ever with those type of halakhot. And forgive me that I'm skipping over those opinions. I have a shiul on YouTube, three-part series called Pagans Among Us on Jewish attitudes towards non-observant Jews. And that's an important topic of conversation, one that really has to be addressed in a world where somebody may not keep Shabbat and they may not eat kasher, but that does not mean that they don't believe in Akadosh Baruch Hu, and they don't feel part of the Jewish people, and they're not part of, they are part of our communities, and as such, when our rabbis referred to a Mechalel Shabbat of yesterday, was a different person than the Mechalel Shabbat of today. Uh, Daniel, you have a question? Uh, yes, um, will you be able to say a particular word on sushi? Uh, sushi. You want to push me up against the wall in this one? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Let, no, yeah, it's a good uh, question. A I want to talk about sushi. I, I assume people are going to ask me about sushi. So let's do that at the end of the class. If you can ask me again, I will tell you my, my thoughts about sushi. But preliminarily, think about the rice. Okay, the rice and the sushi is a problem with liver. Not much. The fish, I think the fish is also a problem. But if you wanted to make an argument that today people eat fish raw, you have to, again, how, how subjective or objective this is. But let's talk about sushi then. And they do not intend to cook. The food is permissible. So what's the classic example? On Erev Shabbat, he sent me a picture. He ordered to his house uh, kosher grasshoppers that I guess he was going to serve his guests. And I'm, I'm assuming that must be in the context of a shoe or something he's giving on the topic, uh, hopefully. But Rabbi Yitzchak, uh, this halakha is relevant to that. So a non-Jewish person is burning down his backyard while well, he wants to clear all the, the bushes or whatever else is happening. He lights a fire. And then what happens? He clears away all these bushes 
And you find, look at all these roasted kosher grasshoppers that are at the bushes. Can I eat them? Or are they a problem before they go in? So Maran says that these are not a problem before they go in because the non-Jew who cooked them, there is no problem of cooking when he does not intend to cook food. The same would be true if a non-Jewish person is hired to use some kind of hot fire or liquids to remove uh, feathers or hairs from an animal that we've slaughtered. So that minimal amount of cooking, let's say the the ears of the animal that got cooked in the fire, yes, now they're cooked, but he was not heating up this fire in order to cook. He was doing that in order to uh, just do his job of clearing away the fur or the feathers, and therefore that is not a problem of Bishul Egoim. Uh, talking about the Bishul Egoim, today he sent me a source, uh, I'm right now forgetting who's, maybe the Maritats he sent to me, or the, the, I think that was him. And he says that therefore a non-Jew who's cooking on his own for his business, he's not intending to cook, so he's cooking, that's his job. Then there should not be a problem with Bishul Egoim when a non-Jew cooks for us professionally or commercially, that would apply to factories and other countries. That I don't feel comfortable with this leniency, but definitely there are Chachamim who do feel comfortable. Anything with the Jewish person cook a little bit of it. Whether at the beginning or the end of the cooking of the food, mutar is permissible. And therefore, if a non-Jewish person put a meat or a pot on top of the fire, and the Jewish person either flipped the steak that's on the fire, or they mixed the pot on the fire, or the other way around. The Jew cooked and the non-Jew finished cooking it. This is permissible. Says the Even if the non-Jew is a crucial part of the cooking, this is still permissible. So the Jewish person has to be involved at some point of the cooking. And that would make the food kasher. Malando qualifies that with another halakha. So let's look at halakha Zayin on page 13. This idea that if I close the oven, it counts as making the food kasher only works with bread. But regarding other foods, Again, I'm translating this wrong. Let's read it again. The lighting of the fire inside of the oven. I'm glad that I read this to you with the wrong Nikud. The lighting of the fire is not enough to make the food kasher. That only works with bread. But regarding food, it's the putting the food on the fire that makes the food kasher. Therefore, Somebody who wants to cook in a frying pan or in a non-Jew's oven. The Jew has to put the pan inside of the oven. In the place where it can get cooked. Let me explain to you this halakha, but after I read to you the Ramah. There are those who argue. Their opinion is, There are those who say that lighting the fire is enough, just like it works for bread. It works for cooked foods, and that is the custom in Ashkenaz. This, my friends, is going to be the primary difference between Sephardim and Ashkenazim as it relates to the laws of Bishleguim. Listen carefully, because as lenient as you may think I may have been until now, now I'm going to ruin all your uh, positive feelings about me. My wife 
says, yo, it's 4th of July, I don't know, whatever. That's our independence day from you. Uh, 4th of July uh, is a celebration in the United States and we're going to have a barbecue. Uh, so I say, listen, Abanit, you work so hard the whole year. Uh, why do you have to work? Let me make the barbecue. So what do I do? Uh, I take the meat that my wife went to the store to buy and she put it in a marinade and she closed it in a pan and she covered it in foil and she put it in the fridge for 24 hours to let it marinate and she takes the corn on the cob and she seasons it and she puts it in a pan and she, she does all these and puts the hot dog buns, the hamburger buns, she does everything. And then she takes it outside for me and she lit the fire in the barbecue and I sit there with my apron, I'm king of the world, I'm grilling a steak and I'm putting a corn on the cob in the fire and rolling a hot dog over and then my wife takes the pan of all the food that I made and she puts it in a hot pot so it stays hot. And she sets the table and she makes a salad and she puts the side dish and that. And then we sit at the table and I say, Kara, how do you like my cooking? Didn't I do a good job? And you look at me as some presumptuous, pompous, boom, I'm hot. What kind of arrogant person are you? You didn't do anything. What did I do? She marinated. She went to the store. She bought it. She panned it. She put it. What I did? I threw it in the... But imagine this scenario. Imagine... If all I did was turn on the fire, so I lit the barbecue, and my wife for three hours is out there grilling chicken breasts and chicken wings and, and steaks and all the foods you can imagine. And then we come to the table and I say, Rabbanit, I hope you enjoyed your day off. Don't you like all the food that I cooked for you today? I didn't do anything. What did I do? I turned on the fire. And then Ramah says, turning on the fire is such a crucial part of cooking that if a Jew turns on the fire, no matter who cooks food on that fire, this is considered cooked by a Jew. But the Jew didn't cook anything. The Jew just turned on a fire. The Ramah says it doesn't matter. This is considered cooked by a Jew. Maran disagrees. Shigirat Atanu is not an amoelit. It doesn't help us. Who cares who turned on the fire? What matters is who cooked the food. Chachamim didn't have a decree against non-Jews turning on fires. Chachamim made a decree against non-Jews cooking food for us. And therefore, for those of us who follow the Shulchan Aruch, you have to be very careful. Food that is cooked in a kasher restaurant, in a kasher wedding hall, in any other kasher venue that you might have, is entirely not kasher according to Shulchan Aruch. So what happens in a modern restaurant or a modern kitchen? In a modern restaurant or a modern kitchen, uh, the caterer, he maybe is Jewish. He hires an entire cooking crew. They're not Jewish. There's a mashgiach. What does the mashgiach do? Who's a mashgiach in the restaurant? There was an article in the news now in Israel that a number of yeshivot just realized that all the food they've been eating for years are not kasher. So who's the mashgiach? The mashgiach is whoever couldn't get a job. Who's a rabbi? Whoever couldn't get a job doing something else becomes a rabbi. So now, who does the mashgiach? Whoever couldn't get a job being a rabbi, now he becomes a mashgiach. My wife, I'm talking about my wife. She says, whoever can sing is a singer, and whoever can't is a cantor. Same thing with a mashgiach. This job of a mashgiach his whole purpose is to supervise the kitchen. What does he do? You go look at the kitchens around the world. The mashgiach is sitting there on his iPhone. What's his new game everybody's playing on Facebook? With the green boxes? That one, Wordle. Very good. So you have <laughs> you have everyone that was a mashgiach. He's sitting back there and he's playing uh, Wordle or, I don't know, Tetris or on his, not coach, uh, his kosher phone or whatever he's doing. That's all he does. This mashgiach comes in the morning, he turns on the fire, and the whole day, Goyim are cooking food, and what does it say on the wall? This food is kasher, everybody in the world can eat it, what do you mean everybody can eat it? 
According to Ramban, according to Maran, this food is not kasher. This food is not allowed. I don't care if it has a fancy logo of the badat on it. At the end of the day, this food is forbidden to be eaten by rabbinic law. What happens if you eat it? You violate a rabbinic law. So it's not biblically prohibited. But rabbinic law is important. It's like it's not. The rabbis tell us that anyone who violates the words of Hachamim is liable for the death penalty. So the Ramah introduces this opinion that as long as the person who lit the fire was Jewish, all the food cooked on this fire for the rest of history is fine. Now, the Ramah adds one more opinion at the end of the gray writing on page 13. Even if a Jew didn't stoke the coals, and he didn't throw a stick into the oven, but the Jew gave the non-Jew a flame to light the fire with. Shari, it's permissible. Let me give you the scenario. You hear somebody walking down the street and say, hey, do you have a light for my cigarette? Yes. So what happens? This guy, he takes the cigarette, he lights it from your lighter. You're a Jewish guy. Why do you have a lighter? Not because you smoke. I don't know. You like to uh, burn the ends of your teaching. I don't know. Some, you have a lighter in your pocket. You now take this cigarette, the non-Jew. He takes it and he lights the coals in his barbecue and he makes food and he gets a certificate on the wall. Ah, glad kasher. This food is mehadrin minahadrin bishul disayel. You think it's a fancy story? I'll tell you the truth. And many, 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 many restaurants that I've been to in my life. In my city, it's even worse. It's not that a Jewish person turns on the fire. A Jewish person never turns on the fire. Rather, what happens? Has anyone here been to a commercial kitchen before? Commercial kitchens work differently than our kitchens, our, our regular kitchens at home. A commercial kitchen, they have these huge gas stoves. And they have in the corner a little, tiny little flame. They call that flame a pilot light. You might have a water heater in your home that heats up water. Also has a little pilot light inside. And whenever you want to turn on the stove, essentially what happens is the stove is it's gas and it gets its fire from that little pilot light. So what happens? In many kasher establishments, a Jewish person comes once a month, once every three months, once every six months, and they turn on all the pilot lights in the oven, in the stoves. And the non-Jews, they cook there the whole year using the pilot light flame to the Jewish person lit a year ago. Haikal, they're going to write, Bishul Israel. This food is cooked by Jewish people. It's the Jewish people. This restaurant hasn't seen a Jewish person inside of it. What else? In my city here, they have it even fancier contraption. What do they do? I'm not telling you it's halakhically valid. Just telling you it's what they do. In the restaurants, the mashviach comes and he puts all the ovens and stoves on the timer. So it turns on at 7 o'clock in the morning and it turns off at midnight. And he sets that timer on the day they open the restaurant. 17 years later, why do I say 17 years later? No kosher establishment has lasted here that long. So I'm not talking about anybody they know. 17 years later, the mashgiach has not visited the restaurant. All that matters is all the food that is being cooked by goyim is considered cooked by a Jewish person because the timer was set by a Jewish person who turned on the oven 17 years ago. So when it comes to learning to laugh, it doesn't matter, you're Savadi, you're Ashkenazi, whatever you consider yourself. The one thing you have to say, you recite a blessing in the morning. What do you say? You gave me a Torah Temet. It's a Torah of truth. How can I possibly imagine, regardless of what your opinion is, that food that is cooked by a non-Jew with a fire lit by a Jewish person seven years ago, how can you possibly consider that food to be 
not a problem of Bishul Adon. It doesn't make any difference who said it. By the way, to the credit of Achalone Ashkenaz, many of them disagree with the Ramah. The source of the Ramah's ruling here really comes from the laws of the Ben Migdash, Kodashim, things that are not relevant at all to Kashrut. I believe it's the Taz. Don't hold me to it. You can look it up. The Taz argues that the Ramah is entirely incorrect. His premise is flawed. I believe in the Gaon of Vilna believed that his premise was flawed. And of all the chumot that I've seen Jewish people take on in their life, and they take on chumot about things that knew ne- even Moshe Rabbeinu never knew there was a halakha like that. But this halakha, which is written in the Mishnah, it's written in the Talmud, it's codified by the Rambam, it's a halakha in the Shulchan Aruch, seems to be that nobody cares. Nobody cares that the glad kasher food that you eat around the world should actually be kasher. Why? I have no idea. Everyone wants to rely on the Rambam. All of that means that even if you could argue that Ashkenazim would be allowed to eat that food. What about Sephardim? What about us? When I go to a restaurant, anywhere in the world, I go to the kitchen and I say, can I please speak with the Mashgiach? I tell the Mashgiach, is it okay with you, please, if you cook the food for me? Oh, no, I lit the fire. I don't want you to light the fire. I don't care who lit the fire. You can let whoever you want to light the fire. I want you to cook my food. Okay, so I was in New York. I was dating my wife. In the early days, I was walking with a Chinese restaurant. And we come to this restaurant. And I said, I have to speak with the mashgiach. I spoke with the mashgiach. And I said, do you mind going to the kitchen and cooking my food? I'm happy to pay you for it. I said, no, I'm not going to cook your food. What do you have to I'm asking you, can you cook? I need it to be cooked. No, I'm not going to cook your food. This is mashgiach, by the way. If you would ask him to spell the word mashgiach in Hebrew, you wouldn't know how to write mashgiach in Hebrew. But he's a mashgiach. And I, I told him, listen. I really need this food to be kasher according to Shukhan Aruch and Rambam. He tells me, I don't even go to the kitchen. I'm not allowed back there. Excuse me? They're not allowed into the kitchen. It offends the non-Jewish workers when I look over their shoulders all day. So forget Bishul and Goyim. How do you even know this place is kasher? You don't have, there's nobody in the back. But Haikal, the certificate from a very well-known rabbi, the certificate says the amount of praises this rabbi gives himself in his certificate, lo yuman kisubah. I go to a restaurant in Israel, a regular Rabbanut restaurant. If there's some Israeli guy working in the back, but I see who's working in the back. My cousins, not my cousins, our cousins. And I say, hey, listen, as much as I appreciate my cousins, the Ishmaeli, I'm not allowed to eat their food. And so would it be okay with you if I go to the back and put the food in the fire? Nine times out of 10, they say yes. What's the big deal? What could happen? I was in Flatbush. I went to meet somebody at a restaurant and there was a schnitzel restaurant. And I said, listen, is it okay if you're going to ask the mashgiach to put the schnitzel in the oil for me? And the lady, was like a, a young uh, Jewish girl, a high schooler probably working for some extra dollars. She announced, please make order 121 super kosher, please. I mean, they already knew that super kosher means that a Jewish person has to cook the food. But Hashem, at least they knew. I was now in uh, Dallas, not Dallas. Where was I? I was in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, with my wife, my family went to a restaurant and it was a busy night. It was a crazy night over there in the restaurant and the, the staff was, I said, listen, if it's really okay with you, I want to eat here, but I can only eat here if you cook the food for me. They weren't having it. I went over to the mashiach and said, my mashiach, please, if you could do me a favor, if you could cook the food for me. And uh, he did. He went to the kitchen. He cooked the food for me. At the end of his shift, when he left the restaurant, I went to him. I don't remember if it was $40 or $50, but I gave him cash, $40. And uh, he said, what is that for? I said, I know, it's hard. You're going to pay for this. But if for me, it's worth it. Then my food, I already paid $300 in that restaurant. 
it's worth it another $40 to make sure that the food I ate at the kosher restaurant is actually kosher. And so I've spoken too much about this. There's no reason for me to keep talking about it. But one of the major differences between Savaladim and Ashkenazim is, does a non-Jew actually have to cook the food? Uh, does a Jew actually have to cook the food? Or is it enough if a Jewish person uh, cooks the food? Now, Maran is going to tell us in Halakha Chet that there is a time. Let me ask you one more question. According to Maran, will there ever be a scenario in which the person who lights the fire is enough to make the food that's sitting on the fire kosher. I mean, is there ever a scenario where Maran would say that the person who lights the fire is important? I will tell you yes. Imagine this scenario. You take the food and you put it in the fire. And the fire is off. I mean, the oven is off. So the Jewish person put the food in the fire. But what happens here? Who turns on the fire is the one who's actually cooked the food. So if the pot comes before the heat, then the one who turns on the heat is actually the important one, not the one who puts on the pot. So Maran is not stuck on the Jew putting the pot versus the Jew lighting the fire. It's whoever is making the crucial action of cooking, whether it be turning on the fire under the pot or not. That's exactly when we need to figure out if this food is kosher. And the rest of the halakhot here all talk about different situations in which um, if the food is half cooked, if it's partially cooked, if it's a third cooked, if it's uh, all, uh, none of those halakhot are so relevant to us. And rather, the only halakha that I wish to read to you from here is halakha Yudgiman on page 15. Maran writes the following. Dag, fish, shemalcho goy, that a non-Jew salted, or fruits that were smoked, or they were in any which way uh, processed in order to make them kasheh. Maran says that pickling things and salting things and smoking things, though those are ways to prepare food, they might be forbidden in other contexts of halakha. When it comes to Bishulei Goyim, they don't count. Halakhelet's writes in source 14, V'simanat, here's a sign for you to remember. There's no forbidden cooking of akum, of Goyim. Be'akum. What is akum? Rashi Tevot, Ishun, smoking, kivush, pickling, and milicha, salting. So smoked salmon, for example. If the fish is kasher, the smoking process does not cause it to be considered cooked by a non-Jew. Pickled foods, even though pickling is a method of cooking in other areas of halakha, when it comes to bishulei goyim, pickling or salting are not considered problems when it comes to uh, bishulei goyim. So you can think of uh, beef jerky, for example, or some kind of other uh, d- dried foods or any other thing that would make something processed, those would not be problems of bishulei goyim. And lastly, on page 16, the utensils of non-Jews, do they pose a problem for us in terms of kashrut? And the conclusion that we reach is no, they don't, especially in today's world of stainless steel cooking, where like I mentioned you earlier, that really there wouldn't be a problem, even according to those who say that non-Jewish foods could actually make the pot or pan not kashel, like malad, they require kashel, but in today's world, uh, there are reasons to be lenient. Uh, on page 16 and 17 and then 18, a non-Jewish person who has to cook for a sick Jewish person on Shabbat, they need food, even if they're uh, uh, not in danger. It's not, it's not a life-threatening situation, but a Jewish person who needs food cooks for them on Shabbat. And if you look at source uh, 1 on page 18, the Tzitzel Yezer Wallenberg, based on the Mishnah Bu'ah and the Shulchan Uch and the Rambam that I quoted on page 17, he says that let's say somebody hires uh, a helper at home 
to take care of their wife and who is not well. She's not going to die, but she's not well. And that aid cooks on Shabbat, that food would actually be kasher, even though it's that, that food is considered bishulegoim, but it's not going to be a problem. Even that food is, is a question whether it can be cooked, but the problem of bishulegoim will not apply. On page 18, I talked to you about non-observant Jews and the writings of Rabbi Yosef. Chacham wavers back and forth. Initially, he's lenient and says that non-observant Jews, doesn't matter, you can eat their food. Later, he wants to be strict after a conversation he had with Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg. Uh, if you look at this Tishuvah of Waldenberg on page 18, I highlighted for you something that I mentioned to you in the past. As you know, the first Sephardic chief rabbi in the state of Israel, not of Israel, but in the state of Israel. When he founds the world Sephardic Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, he hires, as the Rosh Yeshiva of the new Sephardic Yeshiva in the world, he hires Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg to be the Rosh Yeshiva. When they asked him, how do you hire an Ashkenazi rabbi to be the Rosh Yeshiva of the world Sephardic Yeshiva that you just got us all excited about? And the Uziel says, he's the one who is fitting for this. But I think the story is mentioned. I heard that you had a Rabbi Chezi Kohen come to the Chavuah. And I don't know him personally, but I have one of his books. And in his book, he mentions this about Rabbi Uziel. The story is recorded there. So if you actually want a source for the story, you can look in his book about different Chachamim. If you don't have that book, I highly recommend having a copy of that book in your home. And if anyone ever wants to translate a book, that would be a very important book to translate into, very easy book to translate, a very important book to translate into English. If you look at Rav Waldenberg's Teshuvah, you will see that he quotes numerous Sephardic Chachamim. He's answering this question for a Sephardic Jew, and as such, he's quoting Sephardic rabbis throughout his Teshuvah. And that's the beauty of Rav Waldenberg. Regardless of whether or not he was Ashkenazi, he was proficient, proficient, and not just familiar, proficient in the writings of Sephardic Chachamim. And that, that is likely the reason that Rav Uziel saw in him a personality that could unite Sephardim and Ashkenazim together, which was the life mission of Halab Uziel. On source uh, four and five, you deal with the question of hotels and wedding halls and restaurants and all kinds of places and where Chacham Ovedea Yosef wants to be lenient regarding food that is cooked there. Maybe after the fact, if you go to a wedding and the food is already cooked by Goim, there's all kinds of doubts that he makes, double doubts against the Shulchan Aruch and against this and against that. And through some mental gymnastics, Chacham Ovedea Yosef rules on page 22 that even Sephardim who go to hotels or restaurants or wedding halls and they're kosher certified by the local rabbinate, but the cooking of the food is not in accordance with Shulchan Aruch, that they have who to rely on if they want to be lenient in this regard. Mori Harav Yaakov Peretz does not agree with this ruling, but this is not as the ruling of Chabudah and we use it as a limud zechut and anybody who eats in those restaurants or cooking or catering halls or anything else, that there is definitely on whom to rely. On page 21, on the top left of the column, Rabbi Rafael Berdugo is quoted in his book, Torot Emet. It is notoriously difficult to get a copy of Torot Emet. Thank God I have my own. But even if you get a copy, it is notoriously difficult to read the print that is inside of this old copy of Torot Emet. So Rabbi Rafael Berdugo, he understands that the food that is cooked by non-Jews only applies with idol worshippers. But contemporary non-Jews who are not idol worshippers, including Yishmaelim, especially, that all of the food that they cook is kasher. Rabbi Yosef Masas was of a similar opinion. That Bishulei Goyim doesn't really apply with the Goyim that we have today. And I quote that to give respect to them, but I respectfully agree with the Chachamim who disagree. 
Because at the end of the day, the prohibition is marrying their children. And whether or not you worship idols or not still doesn't make a difference in terms of my marriage to your children. And as such, though I wish that were to be the halakha, and it could be that you can utilize this opinion in situations of maybe it was cooked by a Jew, maybe it was not. Maybe it was cooked by an idol-worshipping Jew, maybe not. Maybe you could rely on those type of situations. That's what Chacham of the Yosef uses when he deals with Arabs and kosher kitchens. But I feel, I feel that that is not the... That's not the correct approach, and I'm not disagreeing. I'm just saying that I, I don't like to play games. Malan says, "Goyim, it's goyim, and leave it at that." Hanukkah was behind us, but for those of you who like eating donuts, one of the major wars that raged between the Chachamim was whether donuts are considered baked goods like bread, and therefore you can eat them from goyim, or whether baked uh, donuts are considered because they're fried and they have a very liquidy dough. Are they considered a problem of Bishulei Goim? And I bring for you an overwhelming number of Chachamim who prohibited donuts because they were not considered baked goods, but rather cooked foods. Though there is a minhag in many communities to be lenient and permit this, uh, at the end of the day, this is a rabbinic prohibition. So you do with this information what you want. My, my tendency is in rabbinic prohibitions to be lenient, like our Chachamim instructed us. Nonetheless, I cannot ignore all of the Chachamim who prohibit donuts Seemingly, the Rambam also. If you look in the writings of the Rambam, he mentions donuts as one of the foods that are prohibited to be cooked by goyim. The caveat, though, there is the Rambam mentions there not because of bishulei goyim, but because of the the non-kasher residue that might be there, or whatever you would translate gilei goyim. Nonetheless, the said utilizes this controversy in source thirteen to say that the donuts that you buy today, you would be allowed to eat them, and you don't have to worry about bishulei goyim. Lastly, another famous lingency of Chavod Yosef, and with this we will call it a day, is regarding canned foods. I don't have time to go through all of the details here in this Yishma, but Chavod Yosef believes that canned foods, by the nature of them being canned, means they are not able to be served on a royal table. And together with that and other leniencies that are grouped together as sifikot, as double doubts against the Shukhanahu, Maran rule, uh, Yosef rules maybe not like Maran, but he rules that canned products are not a problem of Bishul Egoim. And I will just say that there was a time, and there may still be a time, where certain factories can their foods. So they can raw beans or raw corn or whatever it might be. And then they boil the cans, and then they label the cans. In that situation, I would agree that those canned goods are not a problem of Bishul Egoim because literally a canned food uh, would make it not Bishul Egoim. The question, though, is if they cook the corn or they cook the beans in a huge vat and then they can them. So now that you put it in a can, it loses its status of food that is prohibited because it's put in a can. And therefore, I'm not as comfortable with this leniency as others, though in my forum, I generally tell people that they have food to rely on when it comes to canned products and their kashrut status. And for right now, I just want to thank you all for learning with me, for taking the time out of your day or your evening to sit and learn to allow with me. I'm happy to answer all of the questions that you may have at the end, but I want to give you a 30-second summary of all the halakhot that we learned today. And that is, there is a rabbinic decree that says that food that is cooked by goyim is forbidden for us to eat. Why? Because of intermarriage. That's the reason, not because of kashrut. Where there are kashrut issues, then there's a problem of kashrut, not a problem of bishul goyim. To which food does this apply? And this applies to any food which cannot be eaten raw and would be served at a royal table. If any one of those are missing, 
then the food is permitted to be cooked for us by a non-Jew, assuming that everything is kasher. Uh, next, which non-Jew? Any non-Jew. It doesn't make a difference if they're idol worshiping or not. It doesn't make a difference if they work for us or not. A non-Jew that cooks for us food is prohibited. It doesn't make a difference if it's a residential setting or a commercial setting. It's not the same as the bread of going. Rather, all foods that are cooked for us by non-Jews are prohibited. Are there different exceptions to these rules? Yes, what's crucial for us to remember is that according to the halakha, as understood by the shukharu, is that the crucial part of cooking is who actually cooked the food. Who put the food in the fire? If you go to a kashen establishment and the non-Jews are cooking food in a fire that was lit by Jews, you should know that that would not be considered kashen at all according to the shukharu. Yes, there is a ramah that permits that, though that ramah goes challenged by Ashkenazi commentaries, as well as the Khamuvayasef who wanted to judge people favorably and issued a, a ruling which said that there is who to rely on if you would violate the words of Malan. But as I am consistent from all my shuim from the beginning until today, eh, I believe that if we want to be honest people and we say that we are Sagaladim who follow the Shukhanahu, we have to follow the Shukhanahu. We can't play games all the time. We follow Shukhanahu here, we don't do it there. We're Sephardim when it's convenient for us, but when it comes to other things like cheese or like cooking, we're not Sephardim anymore. Now the Balea to Sephardim, we rely on them. You have to be consistent in your halakhic methodology. And as such, I'm recommending that we follow the rulings of the Shulchan Aruch. And the best thing that can come out of this view is if we raise the consciousness of the Shul organizations or the local restaurants that you have to ask them, what would it take for this food to be cooked by Jews? I will tell you one last story before I call it a night. To my wedding, so I got married in Borough Park. For those of you who don't know the story of how my wife and I met, it's an entertaining stand-up session for another night. Enough for tonight. I'm not on a comedy tour. But how Sephardic Yonatan Halevi met Hasidic Devorah Goldberger, and we got married from San Diego and Borough Park. And that's a fascinating story. I got married in the Hasidic wedding hall, a Belzer Hasidic wedding hall in New York. Not where I thought in a million years that I would get married, but that was the case. And it was equipped even with a mechitza that went up until the throne of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's the type of wedding that I was at. And that was my wedding. Now, when it came to preparing for the wedding, Agapelets always request that we don't serve red meat at Jewish weddings or any uh, anything that we host, we shouldn't serve red meat for the reason that, unfortunately, there are a lot of problems with the kashrut of red meat. So I asked my in-laws and I asked my parents for permission. I know you're paying a lot of money for a wedding. I really request that we only serve fish and chicken and we avoid the fancier red meats. I don't want it to be on my account. I just got married. I don't want all of these hundreds of people to be eating food that might be a problem with kashrut. And then... I spoke with the Mashgiach and I said, listen, I know that you have a whole crew that cooks for you and you're cooking for 600 people. Well, our wedding was a big wedding for sure. And I know how much work that is. How much will it cost if I hire another Jewish person to come work with you and the two of you put all the food in the fire? He said, we cook for a whole day before the wedding. I said, tell me by hour. And after my wedding, I paid this man another few hundred dollars to hire another person so that all the food that was served at my wedding should be cooked by Jewish people. I didn't want on my account that the whole people, all the people that come to the wedding should be eating food that according to Shulchan Aruch is not kasher. I put my money where my mouth is. I ask you to do the same. If you can raise consciousness of the Tanakh, that it's crucial for us to follow the rulings of our Chachamim. Our Chachamim, we are loyal to them, just like we are loyal to everything else they said. And we have to make sure that the establishments, the events that we host, you're hosting a Shabbat dinner, you're bringing a catering company, ask how much more would it cost for me if you could follow the Shulchan Aruch and make this food actually kasher. And I'm certain that if you do this, anyone who follows in the rulings of Chachamim will only find blessing and goodness. For right now, I wish you a lot of Sina. I'm handing the Chavra back to you. Thank you so much, and I'm looking forward to seeing all of you next week. Thank you so much, Chachamim. What a powerful message to end on.
Um, thank you so much. Uh, looking thank forward you. to the review. Uh, Hakam, are you uh, sticking around for questions and answers? I will or? stick around for as long as they want. If you want to moderate them or not, it's up to you. But I'm, I'm not in a rush. So for me, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So I'm, I'm happy okay. to stick so around. If I stop the recording, and then uh, if anybody wants to ask a question, uh, Hakam, whenever you need to leave, please uh, feel free to do so. And I'll let, you if so you much. want to ask a question, please just unmute and go ahead. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.